If you have your Bible with you this morning, we are in the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 17. We're going to resume our studies through Genesis, and the Lord has blessed us thus far. And we want to begin reading today in Genesis chapter 17 and verse 1, and we'll read down to verse 16, although we'll cover the entirety of the chapter in our study this morning. Genesis chapter 17 and verse 1. It says, And when Abram was ninety years old and nine, the Lord appeared to Abram and said unto him, I am the Almighty God. Walk before me and be thou perfect. And I will make my covenant between me and thee and will multiply thee exceedingly. And Abram fell on his face, and God talked with him, saying, As for me, behold, my covenant is with thee, and thou shalt be a father of many nations. Neither shall thy name any more be called Abram, but thy name shall be Abraham. For a father of many nations have I made thee. And I will make thee exceeding fruitful, and I will make nations of thee, and kings shall come out of thee. And I will establish my covenant between me and thee and thy seed after thee and their generations for an everlasting covenant to be a God unto thee and to thy seed after thee. And I will give unto thee and to thy seed after thee the land wherein thou art a stranger, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. God said unto Abraham, Thou shalt keep my covenant, therefore, thou and thy seed after thee in their generations. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and thy seed after thee. Every man child among you shall be circumcised. And you shall circumcise the flesh of your foreskin, and it shall be a token of the covenant betwixt me and you. And he that is eight days old shall be circumcised among you. Every man child in your generations He that is born in the house or bought with money of any stranger which is not of thy seed. He that is born in thy house and he that is bought with thy money must needs be circumcised. And my covenant shall be in your flesh for an everlasting covenant. And the uncircumcised man child whose flesh is of his foreskin is is not circumcised. That soul shall be cut off from his people. He hath broken my covenant. God said unto Abraham, As for Sarai thy wife, thou shalt not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall her name be. And I will bless her, and give thee a son also of her. Yea, I will bless her, and she shall be a mother of nations. Kings of people shall be of her. We trust the Lord will add his blessing to the reading of his precious and eternal word. Sometimes when we are reading our Bibles and we turn from one chapter to another, we tend to think of that next chapter as the next day. And when we read our Bibles that way, especially in some of the Old Testament narratives, we get this idea that every day was a day in which people were faced with some fresh vision of God in which some miracle or other took place, that the supernatural and the miraculous were everyday experiences. But actually that is very far from the case. 
Between the end of chapter 16 and the beginning of chapter 17, 13 years have passed by. If you look in chapter 16 and verse 16, it closes with the words, And Abram was fourscore and six years old. He's 86 years old. And then in chapter 17, verse 1, it says, And when Abraham, Abram was 90 years old and nine. And so the narrative has moved along. And so we've got to ask ourselves, well, what happened between the time that Abram was 86 years old and the time that he is now 99 years old? And the answer to that is absolutely nothing. Abraham saw no spiritual progress, nor any fruit in his life. There was nothing of any great spiritual significance, certainly nothing that the Holy Spirit saw fit to record concerning Abraham. Those were 13 silent years. God said not one word during that time. You know, there are times like that in our lives, times when God appears to be distant or even silent. God doesn't speak to us today through visions any more than he spoke to Abram in his day through his written word. Yet there are times, is there not, when the word of God seems to be alive to us and when we read it with freshness and and we're blessed and we feel surely that God is directing our lives and speaking to our hearts. But there are other days when we read it and there is nothing. We're reading it just like it was any other book. That's where Abraham was as we enter into chapter 17. He hadn't heard from God for years, not since Ishmael was born. During that time, Abram adjusted well to life as a father, and as we shall see, he developed a deep devotion for his son Ishmael. Nevertheless, he hadn't heard from God in over a decade. No vision No dream, no voice, nothing until we read these words. And when Abram was 90 years old and nine, the Lord appeared to Abram. And when God now speaks to him, we find that first of all, he gives him a reminder in verses 1 through 14. You see, before God said anything else to Abram, I want you to notice that he introduced himself to Abram in a fresh way, in a new way. It says, The Lord appeared unto Abram and said unto him, I am the Almighty God. The Hebrew term is El Shaddai. He says, I am El Shaddai. And God, in using that term, is reminding Abram that he is omnipotent, that he is all-powerful, that nothing is beyond him. He can do anything. Abram needed to know that. Why was that important to him? Because time had passed him by and any hope that Sarai could naturally conceive had now long since died. And the old man believed that the only hope whereby God could ever honor the promises that he made to him had to be through Hagar's son, Ishmael. It's hard to imagine that someone can be so wrong for so long. But Abraham was. And sadly, many people are. Time spent 
trusting in false hope, friends, is time wasted. Abram had wasted 13 years hoping in Ishmael, but his hope was misplaced, and yet God's promises throughout that duration remained true. You see, that name, El Shaddai, was a reminder to Abram that though God had been silent for all those years, still he is sovereign. Still he is in control. Listen, you may feel like you haven't heard from God. You may feel that God is an absentee from your life. You may feel that the heavens have been silent toward you in your present predicament. But I want you to understand that even if you're not hearing from God, God is still in control. He's still in charge. And so having reminded Abram of that truth, God had a simple command for this man. He said, walk before me and be thou perfect. Can I say this to you this morning? You will get far further if you will walk with God rather than run. You know, there are new believers and they come to the faith and they're full of seal and they're excited to be saved and why shouldn't they? Uh, but they sometimes see the Christian life as a sprint and they get off to a flying start and pretty soon, of course, they're out of puff. And even if you engage in long distance running, well, eventually, even with long distance running, you're soon utterly exhausted of all that you have and you grind to a halt. But when a person simply walks day by day, they can walk further. They can do more at a steady pace. God wants us to simply walk with him. Micah 6 and 8 says, O man, what is good, and what doth the Lord require of thee, but to do justly, and to love mercy, and to walk humbly with thy God. That's it. That's all we're asked to do, to walk humbly with our God, uh, just to be faithful, just to be obedient day by day, just to be consistent hour by hour in our walk with him. Abram was told to be perfect, That doesn't mean he had to be sinless. There's no one who is sinless. That means he was to walk with integrity, to be the same person inside and out. He was the person, he was to be the same person uh, publicly that he was privately. He was to be the real deal. The, the The word perfect there literally means whole or complete. God says, listen, Abraham, I want you to walk with me and I want you to do so completely. That's what the Lord wants from us. And now God reminds him of his promises. He says, and I will make my covenant between me and thee, in verse 2, and multiply thee exceedingly. You know, this is the third time that God has brought him back to this promise. Can I say to you that if you don't get a grip of the Abrahamic covenant, right here in this foundational book of the Bible, it's going to mess you up for the rest of the Bible. You've got to get a hold of what God is saying to Abraham and what he's planning to do through his descendants. And I have no doubt that Abraham remembered God's promises to him, but he needed to be reminded not just of the promises, but of the one who made the promises. 
He'd be reminded of the one who had cut the covenant with him all those years before. He needed to be reminded that he was El Shaddai, that he was completely capable of fulfilling his word without any need of either Hagar or Ishmael. Abram's response was instant. Verse 3, he fell on his face and God talked with him. And from verse 4 to verse 16, now it's God who does all the talking. You see, back in chapter 15, when God cut the covenant with Abraham, it was he alone who walked between those halved animal corpses. And here it is, God alone who commits to the covenant. Abram is just the beneficiary of God's covenant, of God's promises. He has no conditions placed upon him. This is why we believe that there's a future for the land of Israel because those Jewish people in that land are the descendants of Abram and the inheritors of the promises that you're reading about here in the book of Genesis and elsewhere. Notice verse 2, God says, I will make my covenant between me and thee. Verse 4, behold, my covenant is with thee. He doesn't say our covenant. He says it's my covenant. This is my promise. This is God's promise to Abraham, not Abram's promise to God. And the Lord says to him, thou shalt be a father of many nations. There's the first part of that promise. Is that true? Did Abraham actually become the father of many nations? We know he becomes surely the father of the nation of Israel. Uh, But through Ishmael, actually, he fathers a great swathe of nations. Nations that stretch all the way from the Atlantic Ocean uh, to to the uh, Gulf, the Persian Gulf. And and if you look on a map of the world and you look at North Africa and you see that uh, great expanse of nations, starting in Morocco, Algeria, Tunisia, Libya, Egypt... You go on and you look beyond Egypt. There's Lebanon and Syria and Jordan and Saudi Arabia and Yemen and Oman and Qatar and United Arab Emirates and Bahrain and Kuwait and Iraq. Seventeen nations on our modern globe today, all of them fathered by Abram. God always keeps his promises. Abraham was indeed and is indeed the father of many nations. And for that reason, God changes his name from Abram, which means exalted father, to Abraham, meaning father of many, in verse 5. Now, as the Abrahamic covenant is reaffirmed, here's what I want you to see in verses 6, 7, and 8. I want you to notice the words, I will. I will. God says it over and over again. I will do this and I will do that. Verse 6. I will make thee exceeding fruitful. And I will make nations of thee and kings shall come out of thee. Verse 7. I will establish my covenant between me and thee and thy seed after their generations for an everlasting covenant to be a God unto thee and to thy seed after thee. Notice the promises to him and to his descendants between me and thy seed after thee in their generations. Notice this for an everlasting covenant. God doesn't turn back on his promises. 
You know, there are people today who suggest that God has changed his mind concerning the promise made to Abram, that the promises that were inherited by the Jewish people have been transferred to a largely Gentile church, and that you and I inherit these promises as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. No, 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 friends. Listen, this was an everlasting covenant. It's eternal. God is not going to change his mind about who inherits the promise. Verse 8 says, And I will give unto thee and to thy seed after thee the land wherein thou art a stranger, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. Five times over we read, I will, I will, I will, I will, I will. This is God's will. God's honor rests upon those Words on these promises, on this covenant. He has pledged himself to do all that he said he would do so that we can be sure that every word will ultimately be fulfilled to the letter. What has Abraham got to do? Nothing. He doesn't have to do anything. He's simply required to preserve the covenant. That's what the word uh, keep there means in verse 9. And God said unto Abram, Thou shalt keep my covenant therefore. God says just preserve it. Safeguard it. Pass it on. That's what I want you to do. I simply want you to safeguard it and pass it on. Well, how is it going to be passed on? Well, verses 10 and 11 tell us that it's passed on by means of the rite of circumcision. Circumcision is the sign of the covenant. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and every seed after thee. Every man child among you shall be circumcised and you shall circumcise the flesh of your foreskin and it shall be a token of the covenant betwixt me and you. Now this is the first mention of circumcision in the Bible and the word literally means to cut around. You know, would you ever wonder why God insisted on such an unusual sign of his covenant. I mean, why not just say to Abram, well, here's an idea. Why don't you just shave your head, Abram, and grow some ringlets down your beard and wear a furry hat like the Orthodox Jews do, and then everybody will know you're a Jew and you'll be keeping the covenant. Why didn't God do that? Or why didn't God say to him, well, you know what, I'm going to do what we did, what what the Maori people did. Just have a little tattoo underneath your lip there. And then when people see that tattoo, they'll know that you belong to me. No, God chooses this unusual mark of circumcision. Do you ever ask yourself, why circumcision? Well, here is Abraham, and he's a believer, and yet he couldn't produce a son of his own for God. And so to remind him of that fact, God makes him cut a piece of skin off his reproductive organ, and it's in effect a sentence of death over his own flesh. It was a sharp and painful reminder and mission that there is nothing he can do of himself to fulfill God's plan for him. That's why he is circumcised. Not only that, it's a personal sign. It's not a public sign. You know, when you're baptized, 
in a church such as ours, they do so as a public statement. That's a public testimony. You're saying to everybody who is there that you belong to the Lord Jesus, that you're trusting in his death and his burial and his resurrection. But obviously this is not the same with circumcision. Circumcision is not a public act. It's a private act. It's not a public mark. It's a private mark. It's uniquely personal. For those Jewish parents who bring their sons to receive the right, well, there's confirmation there to their faithfulness to God's covenant and keeping it from generation to generation. To a Jewish wife, it's indicative that her husband is truly a son of Abram and that God has promised to bless her and to bless her children. And to a Jewish man, it's a daily reminder that he is consecrated to God as a Jew and is pledged in person to the preservation of God's covenant. But before we move on, I want you to notice one other little detail here, one significant little fact concerning this rite. Notice that God said it had to be performed on the eighth Day. Verse 12, and he that is eight days old shall be circumcised. It's very precise, isn't it? Not the first day or the second or the third. The eighth day, not the ninth or the tenth or the twelfth. The eighth day this cut was to be made into the Jewish boy. Why the eighth day? Well, scripturally speaking, the eighth day is the day of new beginnings. You know, you and I meet effectively on the eighth day. Sunday is the, is the, first, uh, is the first day. So we have the, the seven days and then the, the first, or if you like, the seventh and the eighth. is the day of, the, of new beginnings, of a, of a new start, of, of resurrection life. So this speaks of a new beginning for Abram and for his people. But I want you to notice physiologically, that this day is an important day in the life of an individual. Because on the eighth day of your life, now this is a scientific fact, on the eighth day of your life, the coagulants in your body that cause your blood to clot are at their greatest. They're at an all-time high. Before the eighth day, there is a serious dearth of such coagulants. After the eighth day, the level of them begins to fall until it reaches normality, or what we would consider normality. But on that day, and only on that day, is the body at a position where its ability to clot blood is higher than any other time in your entire life. And so God says, if you're going to make a cut on a child, you do it on the eighth day, and it'll heal quickly. God knows his creation. You know, I, I just love, I love this stuff in the Bible, don't you? The Bible always gets it right. God knows his handiwork very well. And then God, he changes Sarai's name. He changes Abraham to Abraham and Sarai's name. No longer that, but Sarah. You know, Sarai uh, means princess. Now she's to become uh, the mother uh, of nations. And in both names, God does something interesting. He introduces a Hebrew letter that has the ha sound. In other words, it sounds like breath. 
And he takes Abram and he says, I'm going to breathe life into you. No longer Abram, but Abraham. And he breathes that, he's that breathing sound. No longer Sarai, but Sarah. The breathing sound. He's breathing life into this couple. And he's reminding Abram that he's a God who keeps covenant. And notice Abraham has not only a reminder, but notice his rejoicing in verse 17. Then Abram fell on his face and laughed and said in his heart, Shall a child be born unto him that is an hundred years, and shall Sarah that is ninety years old bear? He laughed. Verse 19, notice, he says, And God said and said, Sarah thy wife shall indeed, uh, Sarah thy wife shall bear thee a son indeed, and thou shalt call his name Isaac, Isaac meaning laughter, and I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant, covenant and with his seed after him. He laughed. Was his laughter rooted in doubt? Was his laughter as a consequence of his unbelief? Was he embarrassed that for 13 years he had pinned all his hopes on Ishmael and now he finds out it's not Ishmael after all? Was it a nervous laugh? Do you ever have a nervous laugh? You know, I was a teenager. I got into trouble. I used to laugh. It's never good to laugh when you're a teenager and you're in trouble. Mm-hmm. When a teacher would call out my name, I'd start laughing. And then that looked like insolence. And then I get into more trouble than I should have been in in the first place. I remember when I was a, a young fellow running around our, our neighborhood up in North Belfast. And we lived in it. We were very fortunate. We lived in an area of North Belfast that was largely untouched by the troubles. And so, you know, the, the, we had a very sort of normal childhood. It was a mixed neighborhood where Protestant and Catholic kids played side by side largely. And, uh, you know, we were at that point teenagers and we were out on our bikes and we were riding two to a bike. And every now and then a, a police car would show up. The big policeman would get out and he'd give off to you for riding two on a bike. And I used to think to myself, what's your, you know, the country's blowing itself apart and you're worrying about us two riding on a bike. But anyway, he would get, out, he would get off his, out of his car and, and of course he'd tell you off for riding two to a bike and he'd say to your mate, what's your name? And he'd start to write his name down. And as soon as he said, what's your name? i start laughing. And I remember one night this big fellow, he was, a, he was a big police sergeant, he wasn't happy at all with me laughing. He said, so you think this is funny, son? Well, that made me laugh even more. Now, I, wasn't, I didn't remotely think it was funny. I was actually quite concerned. <laughs> but I was just laughing and laughing. He says, I'll take you home to your father. That made me even laugh more. Was that what Abraham was doing? Was he nervous? Was he, was he laughing because he found himself in this delicate situation with God? Well, his laughter wasn't the laughter of incredulity. It wasn't the laughter of doubt. It wasn't the laughter of nervousness. He was simply overwhelmed at the promise that God had brought to him. And I'm sure all of us at times have received good news that we actually laughed when we heard the news. We rejoiced. Perhaps if you passed an exam, you laughed and you said, hey, I passed. Or, or maybe you get a tax refund. Do you ever get a tax rebate? It doesn't happen very often. It's like miracles. But every now and then a brown envelope comes to your door and you open it up and it's a check from the Inland Revenue and they say we're paying and you come to your wife, you're never going to believe it. Look, they've given me money back. 
You laugh with her. Maybe you've given, they've been given the all clear on a life-threatening illness. And you laugh. You laugh with joy at the news. Abram believed God and he laughed when he thought how God was going to bless him and how God was going to keep his promise and how indeed the hope wasn't dead that he was indeed going to use the womb of Sarah, a 90-year-old woman, and he was going to cause her to give birth. He rejoiced. Look at Romans chapter 4 with me. Romans chapter 4. What does it verse 3 says of this moment? It says, For if Abraham were, sorry, for what saith the scripture? Abraham believed God, and it was counted unto him for righteousness. He believed God in this moment. Verse 19, And being not weak in faith, he considered not his own body, now dead, when he was about a hundred years old. That's the place we're at in Genesis 17, when he was about a hundred years old. Neither yet the deadness of Sarah's womb. He staggered not at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strong in faith, giving glory to God. You know, sometimes we just need to give glory to God. You know, sometimes I wish that we could, we could just experience that, that kind of joy that Abraham had that day when he heard that God was going to come through for him and God was going to keep his promise and there was no obstacle, there was no hindrance, there was no problem that was going to be too difficult for El Shaddai. He rejoiced and he laughed. Oh, you know, sometimes you go into some churches and honest to goodness, laughter is the furthest thing from the faces of the people. I remember going one time telling a story at a church one time and it was a funny story. It was so funny I laughed every time I told it. I told this funny story, not a smile, nothing. I mean, nobody flinched. They all looked at me like a cow looking at a new game. And afterwards, I went back into one of the homes and this young lady comes to me. She says, Pastor Moore, she said, that was the funniest story I have ever heard. She says, you know, I almost laughed out loud. You know, it would do us good to laugh out loud once in a while. I used to sing with a choir in a prison. We go to the prison and we'd sing, and the prisoners would be smiling. And they would be enjoying the music. And they would be rejoicing in the good news. And they would be amening when the message was preached. And they would come up afterwards and hug you and shake your hand. And thank the Lord that you were there. And I used to say, isn't it a strange thing? We go into prisons and people look like they ought to look in church. And we go into churches and people look like they ought to look in prisons. Abram laughed. God didn't condemn him for laughing. 
It was a sign of his belief, of his rejoicing. Indeed, as as the passage goes on, the fact that he continues to be called from this moment on, Abraham, is indicative of his belief. And yes, Sarah was 90 years old. And yes, she was long past childbearing years. But yes, El Shaddai had made a promise unto him. And Abraham believed it. And what joy it brought to his heart. Yet he had one more question. Look at verse 18. Notice his request. And Abram said unto God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before thee. And what is God's response? Verse 20. And as for Ishmael, I have heard thee. Behold, I have blessed him. And I will make him fruitful and will multiply him exceedingly. Twelve princes shall he beget. And I will make him a great nation. But my covenant will I establish with Isaac, which Sarah shall bear unto thee at this set time in the next year. And he left off talking with him. And God went up from Abraham. And Abraham took Ishmael his son, and all that were born in his house, and all that were brought, bought with his money, every male among the men of Abraham's house, and circumcised the flesh of their foreskin in the selfsame day, as God had said unto him, And Abram was ninety years old and nine when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. And Ishmael, his son, was thirteen years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. In the selfsame day was Abraham circumcised and Ishmael, his son, and all the men of his house born in the house and bought with money of the stranger were circumcised with him. Now notice that Although God had made him this promise, Abraham still harbored the hope that somehow, some way, Ishmael might be included in the promise. But God had made it clear to him that Sarah, thy wife, shall bear thee a son indeed, and thou shalt call his name Isaac, and I will establish my covenant with him. That's what verse 19 says. Now, Islam teaches that Ishmael was indeed the inheritor of these promises, and that's something that Scripture flatly denies. Look at verse 21. That my covenant will I establish with whom? Not with Ishmael, but with Isaac. My my covenant I will establish with Isaac. Now, later on in Scripture, Paul alludes to this event and to this passage and uses Ishmael and Isaac as an allegorical example of law and of grace. If you go to Galatians chapter 4 with me for a moment, Galatians chapter 4, I want you to see this. Galatians chapter 4 and verse 22. Galatians four twenty-two. it says, For it is written that Abraham had two sons, the one by a bondmaid and the other by a free woman. But he who was of the bondwoman was born after the flesh, but he is of the free woman was by promise. Which things are an allegory? For these are the two covenants, the one from Mount Sinai, which gendereth the bondage, which is Hagar. For this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia, and answereth to Jerusalem, which now is, and is in bondage with her children. But Jerusalem, which is above, is free, which is the mother of us all. For it is written, Rejoice, thou barren that bearest not, break forth and cry, thou that travailest not. For the desolate hath many more children than she which hath an husband. Now we, brethren, as Isaac was, are the children of promise. 
But as then he that was born after the flesh persecuted that was born after the Spirit, even so it is now. Nevertheless, what saith the Scripture? Cast out the bondwoman and her son, for the son of the bondwoman shall not be heir with the son of the free woman. So then, brethren, we're not children of the bondwoman, but of the free. And, and what you're reading there is that Ishmael pictures the law. He pictures man's effort, human endeavor, that which is by nature, whereas Isaac portrays grace, the promise of God's word, a supernatural act on the part of a benevolent God. You know, many times, friends, Christian people do as Abraham did, and we seek to bring in the law alongside of grace. We tend to want to bring Ishmael in on the promises and reduce the faith to a mere matter of legalism. You've got to be very careful about that. You know, sometimes I see people put on Facebook, a true Christian would never do this. And the operative word there is true. As if somehow the definition of a Christian is by what a person does or what a person doesn't do. Read your Bible. Some of the believers in the Bible did the most appalling things. Murder. Committed adultery, did terrible things. But the moment you say a true believer doesn't do, what you're suggesting right now is you'd be bringing Ishmael in. Ishmael will tell us what God really thinks. Ishmael will help us define what we are as a Christian. No, listen, Ishmael is to be cast out. That's what verse 30 and 31 of Galatians chapter 4 says. You don't understand that salvation is entirely by the promises of God that we're born again by his word and by his word alone. Ishmael has no part of it. Nevertheless, God in his mercy reassures Abraham that although Ishmael will not inherit the promise, he nevertheless will know God's blessings upon his life and upon his descendants, and he will establish many nations. And at that point, God departs from Abraham. So Abraham began the process of circumcising his household. And notice he did so immediately. And I love this, this phrase. It says, in the self-same day, verse 23. He circumcised the flesh of their foreskin in the self same day. He didn't waste any time. He didn't think about it. He didn't pray about it. He didn't consult anybody concerning it. He just went ahead and did what he ought to do. We just sang a few moments ago with our children, trust and obey for there's no better way. And, and so it is the life of faith is a life of, of obedience to the known will of God. It's true, whatever area of, of the Christian life you look at, you know, whether it's baptism. Did not the Lord Jesus tell us to be baptized? If he tells us to be baptized, then guess what? We're to be baptized. You say, well, I'd like to pray about that. Well, that would be a prayer of disobedience. You realize that. You say, what do you mean? Well, let's suppose I say to my son, son, I want you to take the bins out tomorrow. The bin man's coming. And he said, I'll pray about that. Would you accept that as a father? 
You say, well, son, you just go ahead and pray about that. What would you do if you come back and said, I don't think it's God's will for me? You'd give him a slap up the ear and help him remember God's will, wouldn't you? You wouldn't take that from your child. I'll pray about that. When you've expressed your will to him, do what I tell you to do. What if he said, well, uh, you know, uh, yeah, I hear what you're saying. You want me to take the bins out? I'm going to ask my mate Jimmy down the road here to see what he thinks. See whether he thinks I should take the bins out. You say, what is wrong with you? You don't need to ask your friend about it. I've told you what to do. You should do it. If God tells you to be baptized, you don't have to pray about it. You don't have to ask anybody about it. You don't have to sit all day looking at your navel thinking about it. You just have to get on and do what God told you to do. The same is true with the Lord's table. You know, people say, well, I I don't think I'm worthy to come to the Lord's table. Like, nobody's worthy to come to the Lord's table. Why are you bringing Ishmael in? Turn to the Jehovah's Witness. You know, the Jehovah's Witnesses, once a year, they meet in football stadiums and the like, and, and they sit there in, in crowds of, of thousands sometimes, and they put the Lord's table out, a communion table out in the midst of their, of their company, and they, and they tell anybody who's worthy, anybody who thinks they're one of the so-called 144,000, they can go forth and, and they can partake of the elements. Of course, nobody does. It's an exercise in futility. Because even the Jehovah's Witness knows he's not worthy of that table. And when you say, I won't come to the Lord's table because I, I don't feel worthy, you're, again, you're bringing Ishmael in. You're saying, well, look here, I brought in the law, and I can see that I fall short, and therefore I can't come to the table. We don't come to the table on the basis of Ishmael. We come on the basis of Isaac. We don't come on the basis of legalism. We come on the basis of promise. We come because we're invited to come by his grace. And you should come. Same is true about anything else, whether it's church attendance or, or Bible reading or witness. You have to pray about those things or consult people about those things or, or meditate and think about those things. You just commit to them. Because we're to walk with our God and that's what walking with God entails. So Abraham began the task of circumcising his household. And notice who was first on the list of those that were to be circumcised after himself, Ishmael, his son. Abraham took Ishmael, his son, and circumcised him. Do you know what's very interesting about that? In the Muslim world, circumcision is still practiced to this day, although there is not one word commanding a Muslim to be circumcised in all the Quran. Isn't that interesting? Their own holy book requires no such right. And yet, uh, the Muslim engages in circumcision. It's almost as if, like Abram, the descendant of Ishmael, cannot face the thought that he has been cut out of the promises, that the covenant was for Isaac instead. And that's at the very heart of the argument in the Middle East. You see, we've, we've got politicians who are going out and, and they're trying to resolve the, the Middle East problem, as they call it. 
But you cannot understand the Middle East problem unless you have some grasp of the theology that creates the problem. And the theology is simply this. The land has been given to the descendants of Isaac, to the Jew. But the descendants of Ishmael dispute that. And they carry on circumcising themselves in the belief that they themselves are the inheritors of the promise and they should push the Jew into the sea and claim a land that is rightfully theirs. No one could be more wrong. And so for 2,000 years the Jew who's held right to that land and now indwells that land has had his inheritance disputed by men. That's the root of the Middle East conflict. Why the Arab will never allow the Jew to live in peace and inherit the land that God gave him. Well, there are many lessons for us this morning in this passage, and we'll close. Firstly, we learn that because we cannot see God or hear God or sense his presence in our lives, that doesn't mean that he has relinquished control of our lives, nor indeed that his promises are no longer good for us. God always honors his word, whether we hear him or not. Secondly, we discover how easy it is for our hearts to deceive us. For 13 years, Abraham harbored the hope that Ishmael was the child of promise, was the chosen one, but he was not. Thirdly, we see how we must approach the word of God objectively. And not with bias, because even when God told Abraham that the promise belonged to Isaac, still Abraham asked about Ishmael. And finally, we see that when God asks us to do something, we ought to do it without delay. We should do it that self-same day. We don't have to think about it. We don't have to pray about it. We don't have to consult others concerning it. We just have to do whatever it is that God has asked of us. Abraham obeyed God immediately and circumcised his whole house. What about us this morning? What about you? Do you need to obey the Lord in some area this morning? Do you need to obey the Lord perhaps in the area of believers' baptism? Do you need to obey the Lord perhaps in joining the church? Do you need to obey the Lord with respect to the Great Commission and, and get busy speaking to others of Christ? What about you? Are you walking before the Lord as you ought? Are you walking with integrity? Are you the same inside and out? Are you the same person publicly that you are privately? Are you the real deal? Are you obedient to the Lord? Because that's all he asks of us as we walk with him day by day. May God bless these thoughts to your hearts this morning. We're going to rise together and sing our closing hymn, Standing on the Promises of Christ my King. Through eternal ages let his praises ring. Standing on the promises of God.